0: Well, if you will turn with me to James, we are at the beginning of chapter four in James. Chapter four in James. Um, last time I preached on James, um, we were James was instructing us in chapter three at the end of it on wisdom. There is a wisdom that comes from below. He described it as being. Um, earthly, and spiritual and demonic, and its source from hell itself, as opposed to the wisdom that is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights, who knows how to give good gifts to his children. This wisdom that is described in verse 17 of chapter 3 as being first, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere. James, in our text this morning, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, he continues his instruction on wisdom. And he argues more specifically here in this text, as we'll get into it here in a moment, on the conflict that arises when wisdom is not implored, in a, uh, implied in a godly way. And so with with that, let's... Go to our text, turn in your Bibles there to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, as I had mentioned just a moment ago, James is hes not introducing a brand new topic here. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, he's just shifting his focus here on the discussion of that same topic. He and desiring to honor those peacemakers he talks about in chapter 3 at the end, you know, especially in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It, that instruction flows naturally into a dis- discussion on just the problems that are being experienced in the church. Um, you know these problems that really call for a need for peacemakers it's a natural flow into here that he's using here well if bitter jealousy and the selfish ambition that he spoke about in in chapter three if these things have filled a man's heart if his guiding principle is a wisdom from below if it if it is earthly if it's unspiritual and demonic if he has alienated himself from god then he promotes disorder in every vile practice when that happens fighting quarrels those are going to be the order of the day that's what's going to come up now the sinful desires of the flesh were the cause of conflict among the body of believers that James is addressing now these unholy causes they ward they battled within the hearts, resulting in greater and greater sin. It even was ruining their prayer life. We must know what we must know what's going on. We must understand this. We must know about the, the cause of conflict in our lives. We cannot be ignorant about this, friends. We cannot afford to stifle the good work of God that he is doing because of seriously wrong thinking. Now James has a pattern of doing this already in his letter, correcting wrong thinking. He continues to do it in our passage today. So, question goes, where does the cause of sinful conflict, where does it come from? Well, my first point is, the cause of sinful conflict, it comes from within. He clearly calls that out in verse 1 of chapter 4. It comes from within us. Now, we don't know exactly the disputes that James is referring to, the quarrels and fights. We can probably imagine what some of those might be, but we don't know exactly what they are. But one thing to consider, though, is that James seems to be more concerned with the general lack of love that's being displayed uh, among the brethren. Among the churches to whom he writes, that are scattered here, um, you know, addressing the bitter attitudes that he has heard about, perhaps witnessed even these bitter attitudes, these the selfish spirits that are being manifested. This appears addressing these things appears to be more of his aim than addressing specific viewpoints on right and wrong. He's not getting that specific. He's addressing, again, these hard attitudes. He's not calling out any specifics here in the text. Now, those early days of the church, um, remember, this is arguably the first letter, the first uh, text written in the New Testament, around the mid-40s A.D. And those early days of the church where believers were, were selling their property. Remember reading about that? Selling their property, they were combining their belongings for the general welfare from the, for the church. Well, uh, that type of generosity and love seems to have paused for one reason or another. At the end of Acts chapter two, we read of that incredible, amazing generosity and the unite that unity that was. Manifested in that generosity among the church that they enjoyed in those initial years. You now, again, since best estimates have this letter being written again around the, the mid forties, more you know, give or take a, a few years, it's been about a decade that has passed since the events of chapter two in Acts. So, what happened? What's happening? I think. Now, one of the great surprising things that a new believer encounters, especially new believers that were previously unchurched, didn't grow up in the church, Um, one of the things that the greatest surprises to them, I think, is, is that the local churches, it's not perfect. And many of society's problems find their way into the church. I think that's a surprise to some. You know, some may have thought that being in a church, you're going to avoid all those people problems. It's going to go away because you're in a church. Well, sorry to say, that is not what we end up experiencing. And frankly, it's not what the Bible teaches in terms of our experience. Now, it's certainly what should be happening. We know this. The ultimate peace, really, that Scripture's teaching can only be found in the person of Christ. That is what Scripture teaches us that we should be seeking in the person of Christ himself. And well, frankly, the church is full of sinners. It's full of sinners. Does that strike anyone as offensive? To be referred to as Sinners. You might be thinking, you know, you've got it wrong there. We're saints. We're not sinners. Well, okay, very well. But beloved, what is a saint but a saved sinner? Being a saint, it's not about one's character as much it is about one's relationship and that's of course one's relationship to god and christ what did paul what did the apostle paul what did he refer to himself as the chief of sinners didn't he In first 1 timothy 115 he says the saying is trustworthy And deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You know, the sooner that we as believers, as saved sinners, as saints, praise God. As soon as we realize that we are still sinners in need of grace, the need of the mercy of Christ every single day, then the sooner that we can appreciate the sanctification that the Lord is working in our lives and what that takes, what that work is that God has to do, that work that's still greatly needed in our lives each and every day because the cause of conflict comes from within, and we constantly need to be on guard. So what, what should believers expect to be dealing with inside of their hearts? Is it okay that a godly man or a godly woman battles with worldly desires in their own hearts? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. No, in that these worldly desires... They reflect the reality of the corruption within, which it's certainly not a good thing, that corruption that still clings to us. However, you know, that's not something that we can completely escape of, this side of heaven. It's it's what the Bible teaches. We, We cannot completely escape that until we die or the Lord comes back. But yes, it is okay, since, you know, this presence of the struggle against these desires is a good sign. You want to be seeing that happening, not only in your life, and of course, first and foremost, in your life. Because you're not looking around at the faults in others so much, as you are starting with yourself. But you want to see that in your life. You want to see it in your children's lives. It's a joy for a parent to see a child struggling over that coming to you and sharing that, is it not? It is a good sign. It is a good sign. It is a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit upon the believer's heart. Our lives as Christians is a battle. James says, a war within. Thomas Manton, that Puritan, he wrote, that there is a double nature in the best people. A double nature in the best people. And that would be that sinful nature inherited from Adam that still clings to us again till we, until we die. And then the, the Holy Spirit tabernacling within us, residing within us, continually at war with each other, continually. Now, Stephen, Stephen Clary, he he taught about this just recently in Sunday school. In Galatians 5.17, it reads, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's so true. The spirit no sooner presents a good idea than the flesh rises up in defiance against it. Amen? There is pride and passion. There is earthly mindedness, uh, envy, sensuality, unbelief, self-seeking, this worldly thinking that's going on. Raging in this battle. And as soon as you decide to repent, believe, pray, these desires are ready to hinder you. To distract you so that you cannot do the things you want to do. Manton, he continues, he says the the sinful nature and the spirit are like the twins in rebecca's womb i like that you know if you know the story between jacob um you know and what he had to deal with and uh, that battle and the struggle and um and then of course isaac and rebecca and the, the struggle that went on in that family um the, these worldly desires they stir up and, and they rage more in the heart of the godly man than they ever do in a wicked person because of that battle, that conflict that comes from within. Well, Luke, he captures Jesus' teaching on this um, when he's explaining the, uh, the parable of the sower. Past right, he'll, he'll be getting to it soon enough. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, in verse 14 and 15, he says, And as for those, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But they go on their way. They are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an an honest and good heart, and they bear good fruit with patience. It doesn't say with bear good fruit and it's a piece of cake. It's with patience. The wicked doesn't possess the spirit of God at all. We know this. So any conflict that may come into their hearts, it very soon dissipates. But that's not so with the believer. He presses onward. And as Christ said, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he bears fruit with patience. You know, that patience, again, that Jesus talked about, Beloved, that's the war within. When Jesus, when he sent out his disciples to do the kingdom work there, uh, he commanded them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And knowing or, or being wise to the potential of the sin in their own lives, in our own lives. It, that crafty nature of sin that's being aware of this is part of the battle. reminding yourself of that that's what James is doing here. Wherever we go, there it is, so we, we cannot be naive about this. We need to be reminding ourselves, we need to be discipling and reminding our family as we struggle against sin together. Peter, he writes in first Peter 2, verse eleven, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Again, that that military language of war, the battle that's going on within. Christ, he teaches, as captured in Mark chapter seven, He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Beloved, we should follow James's example here and ask the same question he's asking in verse 1 where do these fights and quarrels come from where does this sinful nature that's being manifested where is it coming from we should be asking about that anytime we see sin present itself in the cause of it you know people quarrel and they don't know why Usually world desire is going to be at worldly desire is going to be at the bottom of it somewhere. This this corruption of the flesh that causes the conflict among us would want to make us slaves to its passions. That is its purpose and its desire. Sin's purpose. To make you a slave. These quarrels. They are unprofitable, they are worthless. Our great need is to come daily to Christ and find our means of warfare there, our means to battle against it there. You know, to grow in knowledge, to grow in faith. God, in His perfect wisdom and His mighty counsel, he uses this, this need. To humble us, to draw us to Him. Because left unchallenged, these desires, these sinful desires, left unchallenged and in our pride, we will not see, we will not hear, and we will fall deeper and deeper into sin's delusion. That is its goal. It's where it wants to take you. So my second point is the cause of sinful conflict. It leads to greater and greater sin. It's progressive. In verse 2, James, he makes an assertion that the logical conclusion to unchecked and unrestrained passions within are going to lead to greater and greater sin. You know, the, the sinful desires of our flesh The lust of the flesh, the eyes, you know, they can eventually even crave the life of someone else. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. He's writing to believers. James noted this again earlier in chapter 3, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be disorder in every vile practice. That there's a domino effect to sin. You know, one person affects, uh, one person's sin not only affects them, but those around him. It cannot be controlled. That, I think, is one of the biggest areas we fail in thinking that we can control the sin, thinking we can come this close to it and put a stop to it. Friend, as soon as you even entertain the thought, you're already starting to give in to that battle within. We must be about capturing our thoughts as Scripture instructions instructs us. It cannot be controlled. It's, it's part of sin's deception, uh, making its user, making its victim think that it can be controlled. All while quietly the knife slips in. These quarrels and fights... Fights and quarrels. It's interesting if you look at verses 1 and 2, how he, that book in there, quarrels and fights, fights and quarrels. This is what James warns against the most here. And the, the, because the devil, he loves to do nothing more than to divide the church from within, against itself. Well, as James had stated earlier in his letter, he said each person is tempted when he's lured, enticed by his own desire, his own sinful desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Falling into sins you know, certainly does seem to have this progressive nature about it. Taking you further than you want to go. That's what James is telling us. That's what he's warning us against. And in our text today, in these three verses of chapter 4, he says that it leads to murder. Unfortunately, at this point, that is where people sometimes stop looking introspectively when they're reading James's assertion here that it leads to murder. Because they're going to think to themselves, I don't think I could ever murder somebody. I certainly haven't, and I honestly cannot think of a situation where I will murder someone the, the, the you know the, the wrongful killing of somebody, and so they, they stop there they don 't look inside anymore. The introspection stops well under normal st- circumstances, uh, you know interpreting verse two, it would strongly suggest that our Our passions and desires lead to real, actual murder. But that is not what James is really suggesting right here. Although he knew well as as well as we do that murder does sometimes come about. You know, envy is the mother of murder. You know, if, just for argument's sake, if. If it was actual murder that was happening in the church to whom James is writing, again, the unlawful killing of a person, then we should expect to see James say a whole lot more than he does. He, we should expect to see that. You know, If it were actual murder and all he did was give it the, the, the relatively small notation that he does, then it would call into question his credibility as a shepherd, if that's all he had to say. Now James is referring rather to the same type of murder that Jesus mentioned on the Sermon on the Mount, which makes all the sense really, considering that the envy is envy of one sort of another, results in quarrels and fights, it wants what it does not have, it wants what it cannot have, and this jealous hatred comes from it eventually and wants even the life that someone else is enjoying. It looks with envy upon the life of another and it wants that for himself, that jealous hatred and it results in a murder of the heart. So now the careful reader should be thinking, all right, well, unfortunately that's me sometimes. I need to be aware of this. Am I doing this? It's, it's a subtle thing, friends, envy, and what it does, and the bitterness that it causes. You know, we, we tend to think that hatred means you're going out and slashing people's tires. Most often, that's not what's happening. James's readers were were doing this, and he was addressing it. It's certainly a big change from those harmonious days after Pentecost. Um, So the the, the envy that James wrote wrote about in chapter 3, which gives fuel to the sinful desires in chapter 4, is about someone who thinks that he can't arrive at happiness without what someone else has or what someone else is. I want to be that person. Boy, what's a dangerous line of thinking right there sometimes. There's good things to want to emulate when you see a a brother or sister doing. Paul told his readers to do that. Do as I am. But when it comes from a jealous ambition and an envious heart, you know, wanting to be that person it's, it's for the wrong reasons. It's the wrong motives that we'll get to here in a minute. You know, Manton, uh, Thomas Manton, he noted that this very same envy that James is seeing in the church is what brought Cain to murder Abel. It provoked Esau to chase after Jacob. He never did murder Jacob. Certainly hated him. It persecuted and it sold Joseph. It resulted in Aaron and Miriam having to live outside the camp. It it brought Dathan and Abiram down alive into Hades. And it made Saul relentlessly pursue David. Now you could argue those are extreme examples. But that is what comes about when these things are left unchecked. You know, these fights and quarrels from a bitter jealousy, they have a rich history among James's forefathers, and he cannot bear to see it repeated. you know this envy, this covetousness the, these desires such prideful assertions they absolutely have no place in the church at all the Christians possess the very spirit of god within which should restrain such sin but still but still the internal war rages on and such sin happens among the best but it doesn't have to be that way beloved Giving into it and just resigning to it, giving up the battle. You know, finding peace and satisfaction in Christ every day. It takes discipline. You know, humbly going to the Bible to feed on the Word, that's the counteracting nourishment that our redeemed soul truly craves, yet our flesh wars against, you know, cast yourself on the mercy seat of God, get on your knees, you know, effective prayer accomplishes much, brother and sister, it does, but sadly, that's not what the church whom James addresses, that's not what they were experiencing. Their struggle against sin, their their struggle against the sinful desires, it was looking more like friendship in the world. And James said regarding, rather, the effectiveness of their prayers in verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. You kind of want to ask yourself there when you're reading this were they really just not asking God? Were they not praying to God? Friends, uttering words alone toward heaven does not result in prayer. It's much like what James described in chapter one of the prayer of the doubter. You know, That doubter praying for wisdom, perhaps. That, what's James say? That he must not suppose that he should receive anything from the Lord. And that doubt is an issue within the heart. You know, James shares that truth regarding doubtful prayer. That's what he shares with us. The same goes for the prayer offered for base reasons, for covetous reasons. But also also, what's often the case is that the believer actually does either forget to pray to God, or sadly even chooses not to pray, does not ask, truly, on occasions chooses not to pray in the pursuit of sin. You know, when sin is coveted long enough, God is not on that person's mind hardly at all. And the sin has begun to control him from the from the very start. You know, lack of prayer exists also when the believer is comfortable enough with what worldly provisions he has. He's too comfortable in it. He knows life's not stupendous and great, but he's comfortable comfortable enough that he's willing to just Keep on coasting. He sees no need to go to God in prayer each day. Practically, that's what's happening. Or rather, his prayers have grown cold. There's infectious doubt in the prayer. He may not believe in the means of grace that God has ordained in prayer. True means of grace, beloved, that God has ordained in prayer. He may claim an ignorance on these things. I, I didn't know that's grace to be found in prayer. I didn't know it was that important. He may claim an ignorance in these things. But unless, frankly, he is a new convert with little Christian experience, you, you got to under. You've got to wonder what in the world where he's been existing. How has that ignorance persisted? And it's not like the theme of prayer is just tucked away in some corner of Scripture. It's throughout Scripture. Our Lord and Master, the Son of God, prayed to his Father constantly. Because he needed his help. Beloved, I truly have similar concerns even among this body, among you. If everyone claimed to understand the means of grace that God has ordained in prayer, then how is it, for example, how Pastor Wright reported a few Sundays ago that our prayer service is one of the least attended parts of the Lord's Day? And if you say that you don't understand how prayer is a means of grace, then how are you satisfied to remain on the milk and not find the meat? My goal is not to upset anyone here, but to encourage holiness. As James is doing exactly here in this letter, right here in this passage. Maybe, maybe, you need to confess some pride, tucked away in your heart, that tells you that since you're not an aficionado at prayer, some master prayer person, that you don't belong at a prayer service, at a service that's dedicated to prayer. You could be concerned about being called upon publicly to prayer. Now, I understand. I, I really do. The fear of getting up in front of people. I. I understand that. Just remember that you, too, possess the spirit of God who will teach you. You Every believer starts out the same way. And there is, by the way, no shame in passing on praying out loud. You know, folks do it sometimes. And that's fine. You know, I and everyone else who has been attending invite you to come. Which brings me to my third point. The cause of sinful conflict ruins prayer. He concludes, James, in this passage here, in verse 3, instructing his readers that when they do ask God for things, they do not receive anything that is because they ask wrongly. They ask with the wrong motives. As it's translated in other um. Versions of the Bible, other than the ESV, with the wrong motives, they ask to add increase to their pleasures. That's what James is saying. It's like James anticipates an objection about not asking God in the first place. You're telling them that yeah, you do ask. You know, they, he says you do not ask. Yeah, we we ask, but nothing happens. Yeah, you do ask. But because you ask wrongly, you have no room to complain about not being heard. Are you rather saying that your goal is to make God the servant of your desires? When believers seek to gratify their worldly desires, they often look upon God as some great power who must serve them. They're like the man who came up to Jesus in Luke chapter 12. You'll be getting that soon, right? He comes up to Christ. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Would you please tell him to do that? The cause of conflict between that man and his brother, which was covetousness, it ruined his petition with Christ. The conflict that James's audience seemed to be willfully engaging in was because of the their own insistence upon their desires, their sinful desires being met. It caused them to seek their own kingdom, not God's kingdom. And that, friends, that's playing right into the devil's hand. He loves to get you at that point. He wants you to elevate his own wicked kingdom and he is happy to let a believer advance his own kingdom at the same time. I don't believe truly I don't think I've ever spoken with a believer who had not experienced some of God's rejection in his or her, her prayer life for various reasons but experience You know, unanswered prayer. Or even just outright rejection. You know, whatever we ask that is contrary to the interests of salvation or sanctification is not asking in the name of the Savior. Remember, church, how a few Sunday school things ago we went through that book, Praying Backwards, about praying in Jesus' name and what that means. Coming to prayer with... Christ's kingdom on the forefront of your mind. You know, maybe your prayer life consists too much of asking to avoid trials. Asking to avoid trials um, that God uses to strengthen you. Instead of asking for the strength to endure in those trials. You know, Christ is the Savior. He is the Savior, not only when he does what we ask, but when he doesn't do what we ask for. And he may see that our request of him, our petition, is contrary to our own salvation and sanctification. And it's in those refusals that Christ is showing himself indeed to be Savior. Praise him for that. There are a number of ways believers can fail in praying with a proper motive. You know, seeing no fruit in their prayer life. Peter taught in 1 Peter 3, verse 7 that, for example, a husband's prayers may be hindered because of the cause of conflict. Hindered prayer. It doesn't go above the ceiling. A man choosing to be inconsiderate with his wife, withholding honor and being harsh and selfish instead, Peter tells us. That will hinder your prayer life. Ruin prayer life. The psalmist in Psalm 66 verse 8 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Is that happening in your prayer life all too often? The cause for failure in prayer it lies not in God but in man. Every single time. In us. Unless a man's purpose in prayer is to see God's will be done, then the purpose becomes man-centered. You know, to spend it on his passions, James writes. On his passions, on his pleasures. The right sort of prayer rather seeks God's solutions. Not, not man's solutions. Man's solutions elevate man. God is not in the business, so to speak, in elevating man. We don't need any help there either. If anything, man needs to be humbled. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that we must be concerned about our purpose in prayer. Why are we going to the Lord in prayer? You know, consider why you are praying, is the point that James is, is driving at here. You know, some things we can pray about, some things that we pray for are neutral in themselves. They're good or bad, like praying for rain. But with wrong motives, it can ruin that prayer. You know, it's not enough to make God the object of your prayer. He must be at its purpose as well. You know, may his will be done. So how can you get your motives right in prayer? That's a very important and necessary question. Thank you for asking. Um, You know, nothing makes us see the necessity of God's help for our prayers more than this. You know, realizing a need for a godly purpose in our prayer. Boy, do we need God's help for that. Again, I turn here to Thomas Manton. He has some very good advice here I want to share. Says to have a right and God honoring purpose requires the presence of the Spirit of Grace. He says supernatural acts need supernatural strength. You need the spirit warring against your flesh and prevailing. It is true in these eternal things that we deal with. That the flesh does give birth to flesh. Can't expect anything else. You know, water can't rise higher than its fountain. You know, our corruption that we have, that corrupt nature, it aims at its own welfare. uh, Ease and preservation. Therefore, relying on our own reasoning alone, it's not going to work. We can't. It requires the strength and it requires the spirit, the strength of the spirit. So go to God. Go to God. Beg, plead with him for uprightness in your prayer life. You know, that his, it is his gift to you to do these things, this work in you, as well as many other graces that he gives into your life. Calls us to pray to Him, certainly He will help us to do it in a right way. The help that we have from the Spirit is to make requests in accordance with God's will. And that is, to make godly requests for God's sake. And yet sometimes we pray with a proper motive. Proper purpose. And sometimes the answer to prayer is just simply delayed. It's, it's delayed. It's not because we ask with wrong motives. You know, praying for someone's salvation, for an example. Uh, it may be certainly in accordance with God's will, but his timing is all about any fruition that comes forward here. It's in his timing. That's also part of his answer. You know, sometimes bearing and patience is about waiting on the Lord. It's one of God's favorite means of testing. That delay in prayer, man, it tests you, doesn't it? That delay in answered prayer, it is. God uses it to draw, continue to come to him and pray and pray and pray. And unless the Spirit leads you to just accept a situation as it is to endure it kind of like what Paul experienced when he prayed for that the thorn in his flesh to be removed and the spirit kind of said stop Christ is sufficient for your need unless you know it's in a case like that then don't fail in your praying continue to pray continue to pray for that lost loved one You know, praying for them to acknowledge their sin and their need for Christ to receive them. You know, that's, that's part of sowing seed, beloved. That's part of sowing seed, that prayer. And if it is God's will and then in his timing, there will be a reaping. Before I close off here, I actually want to, to encourage a certain type of conflict. Because conflict isn't always bad. You know, we must be on constant guard, of course, because of our sinful flesh, but conflict's not always bad. Some conflict is just a natural part of the diversity that God brings into our lives with each other. And in the church. You might experience on some level some conflict as you go through the chow line and you eat something from a different country that you've never had before. That's okay. That's a very simple example. But there can be good instances of conflict. Some that should be encouraged. Now, we got to remember, again, as we're keeping ourselves on guard, that we are not fully sanctified there is still error to be meted out in our life. You know, God gives direction how to do this in a godly way for conflict to happen. We see that, for example, in Matthew 18. That is an example, friends, of employing, employing godly conflict, right conflict. You know, sin so often is dealt with with a gracious manner in a gracious way um with a faithful brother or sister coming alongside some other brother or sister who is in sin and that person hears them out repents turns away from the sin and you know continue on praising god that happens that happens way more then we see Matthew 18 being fully meted out through some sort of uh, form of excommunication. <coughs> and Praise God for that type of conflict that needs to happen. Ensure that you are of the one who are of this spiritual type that can go and meet out godly conflict and that you aren't being pulled into a conflict that you turn into sin on your own. Because as you go to minister to a brother or sister, we've talked about this, you go to a minister or to a brother and sister who's struggling in sin, and they turn on you, and then you turn into a maniac, (laughs) and you sin yourself. Be on guard. But there is godly conflict that we need to consider as well. God desires unity in the body, unified on the doctrines of Scripture, unified in Christ himself. However, we're not going to go about applying the teaching of Scripture the same way. We're just not. We will not all think and act the same. God gives us a lot of freedom in doing so. You know, other conflicts result from just a simple misunderstanding, all right? No one's foreign to that. Simple misunderstanding. Nobody's a perfect communicator, no one's a perfect listener. God wants us, what's he want us to do? He wants us to assume the best until we actually know otherwise. Boy, that's hard to do sometimes, to not judge the motives of others. And praise God when you get that check in your heart. Oh, wow, I think I might be doing that. And you can repent. And you can then pray for that person in a way you haven't done in a long time. God uses instances like these so often in our lives to drive us to him, to seek his wisdom. And when we do that, that is honoring him because it acknowledges our need of him. Church, even arguments can be a good and healthy thing. They can. There is a mature and godly way to argue a matter with a fellow believer. And yet be gracious and open to reason at the same time. You know, being a peacemaker in that process. Healthy arguments are the stuff of always reforming. You think you know it all until someone comes and argues very well. And by the work of the spirit upon you at the same time to come to a better understanding of interpreting a passage of scripture. That happens through the process of argumentation. Arguing a matter should be civilized. It should be a civilized event that honors God because the purpose of the argument is to seek God's will. That's your purpose. And that's what you need to have in front of you as you go to, to make an argument. Passage after passage in, in James' letter here, and I'm going to close with this. He's laboring to get the church to realize that the the human heart, as Calvin put it, is an idol factory. In in these first few verses of chapter 4, we learn that the ugliness of our our heart idols is what is responsible for the strife that we bring to each other. and, And for what we receive from each other. You know, our spiritual problems, our spiritual problems, you know, those problems most concerning from a kingdom perspective. Those those are not outside of us. They're within us. The cause of sinful conflict comes from within. And once the quarreling and the fighting, the envy and the covetousness, once that begins spreads like a wildfire it's hard to contain it you know what did James say earlier you know regarding the tongue which you know that's what you're using to quarrel and fight with he said how great a force is set ablaze it's like a wildfire you know sin will entice you to think that it can be managed a little here a little there There's no harm, really, if it's managed in that way. That is such a lie. The cause of sinful conflict leads to greater and greater sin. Uh, The victim of the sinful desires of the heart goes on thinking on being religious, doing religious things, looking like and seeing like, or Christians are supposed to be. But wrong thinking, you know, wrong motives have invect- come into this person, infected them from within. His prayers, they go unsaid, unprayed. They go unheard. They go unanswered. The cause of sinful conflict ruins prayer. Beloved, your remedy, your remedy to all this is a common cure. It's a common cure. And don't despise it because it is something that's just so common. It's a heavy dose of the same truths of the gospel that first saved you. Humility, sincerity, confession, and repentance before Christ alone. You know, believing that he who started a good thing in you will bring it to completion. That he saved you. Believing that and, and you therefore you put away those sinful desires. You know, ask God to reveal them to you and pursue the new spirit wrought desires that God has given you. Let's pray.